Well, we are in Genesis, and we are now in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, this chapter, as you can tell, is a, is a narrative. It's a story, an account, if you will, of Cain and Abel. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an account about Cain and Abel, but it's really organized in such a way for us to learn about God. Uh, it is interesting to learn about us as we look at Cain and Abel, but it's wonderful to learn about God as we look at him. And so I'd like you to just take a minute and look at the sermon outline that uh, is in your bulletin. There's, there's three steps or three sections I'd like to work through uh, that, that are important to us to know about God. God is to be worshipped first. Second, God is just and he is merciful. It's amazing that whenever those, one of those things appear, they seem to both appear. So God is to be worshipped, God is just, and he is merciful, but also God will keep his promise of the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. The promise made all the way back in the garden at the fall, he will keep. He will keep, and we'll see him keep it in various ways throughout the centuries as we move through Genesis. Uh, he moves it through the Old Testament, he moves it to the time of Jesus and the fulfillment uh, of Jesus crushing the serpent's head on the cross, and then he moves it forward all the way to Revelation when he reigns as king and he casts Satan into the lake of fire. God keeps his promise. So let me read chapter 4 for us all the way through from verse 1 to verse 26. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord God had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after his son Enoch. 
To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zilah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, uh, to Seth also a son was born. He began, he called his name Enosh. At the time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, if we go back to verse 1, verse 1 seems to be a summary of the first nine months of life for Adam and Eve outside of the garden. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. I'm reckoning that as nine months. Adam and Eve believed God's word, and that Eve would have an offspring, and that she would bear children. And here's the first one. He's the seed of the woman. And how does Eve respond? She rejoices, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I don't think we would be far off to imagine that Eve hopes that Cain will be the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. I think we can consider Eve's words to be words of worship. She is stating her faith in God's promise of a Savior. But, of course, Eve will be sadly disappointed. Cain will not crush Satan. Rather, Satan will crush Cain. Sin will master Cain, as we will see. And Eve has a second son, Abel. Abel is Cain's brother. And we're reminded of that relationship over and over in this passage because it's important for us to know that. Cain and Abel were raised, we might say, in a Christian home. Adam and Eve actually knew God. They're sinners, but they are believing in the promises of God. We saw that last week. And, and they are, best as we can tell, serving God in the fallen world. They're being fruitful and multiplying. So these brothers grow up knowing who God is and what God expects of them, which is worship. God expects to be worshipped. Abel's a keeper of sheep, a shepherd, and Cain is a worker of the ground, a farmer. And Cain appears to be following in his father's footsteps. God sent Adam out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, in the course of time, could mean after the boys grew up, or it could mean that the family had a pattern of worship and it was time to bring the offerings. I think, I think that might be the better rendering. As time came, they came to give their offerings. This could be an annual event that follows the course of the seasons. Either way, the brothers brought offerings to God. 
Both Cain and Abel approach God. Both Cain and Abel give an offering to God. Cain brings an offering from the work of his hands as a farmer. Abel brings an offering as the work of his hands as a shepherd. And then God responds to Cain and Abel and their offerings. And in verse 4, we're told that God had regard for Abel and his offering. But in verse 5, we're told that God had no regard for Cain and his offering. Why? Why? What, what is an acceptable offering? Is a meat offering better than a grain offering? No. Commentators show that the word used here for offering isn't the word used later in Leviticus for a sin offering or for a guilt offering. It's the word used later for a thank offering, for a peace offering. So both grain and animals are acceptable offerings. An offering is supposed to pay tribute to God. It's an acknowledgement that God is the greater authority, the, the sovereign creator who has dominion over all people. It's a way of paying respect to God, of showing your loyalty to him and telling him what joy and gladness you have living under his perfect rule and his gracious provision. We say, you are my God and I will have no other when we worship God. Verse 3 tells us that Cain brings his tribute from the ground. And that's it. It's from the ground. Verse 4 tells us that Abel brings his tribute from his flock. And then it describes the quality of Abel's offering. Abel brings the firstborn and the fatty portions. The firstborn is not just the first one. <clears throat> the firstborn is representative of the whole flock. It's a token of all of them. Abel is saying, here's the firstborn, but they're all yours, God. And the fatty portions were considered to be the very best of all. Now, now in my house, I don't like the fatty portions. I'm, you know, Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. Julie likes the fatty portions. I like just the meat trimmed off. But, but the fatty portions here are the best. So Abel isn't stingy or selfish with what God's given him. And he's not worried about giving God his best because he knows God's giving him his best. Abel is saying, Lord, everything I have comes from your hand and I'm using it all for your glory. Here's my worship. All of that language, all of those words are missing from Cain's offering. We're told only that Cain brought an offering. Cain didn't bring the first and the best because the Lord is not first and best in Cain's heart. That's what we say. Each man's offering reveals what each man believes about God. That's why God not only accepts or rejects an offering, but he accepts or rejects the man who brought the offering. God had regard for Abel, but no regard for Cain. Abel bows before the Lord and gives his best. Cain has decided that some grain is Good enough. Cain offers good enough worship to God. The problem is that good enough worship is never really good enough. It doesn't work that way. What makes an offering acceptable to God is, is what's in your heart. Is your heart all His? Is your heart all for God's glory and not for your own glory? Cain has decided in his heart what is good enough for God. And it's 
you know, zucchini. I don't know what it is about zucchini, but you plant one zucchini plant and you have enough zucchini for the whole neighborhood. You know, the doorbell rings and you walk out and there's a pile of zucchini on your doormat and nobody's there. Or you may go out after church this morning, go into your car, and there's a pile of zucchini in the back seat. Somebody's decided to bless you with their good enough leftovers of zucchini. I wonder how many people do that. I wonder how often some of us give God what we think is good enough. Believing that God thinks it's good enough too. Some tribute, huh? Leftover zucchini instead of recognizing the awe and the majesty and the power and the glory and the goodness of God. Making offerings no more acceptable than Cain's and expecting God to accept us. Well, God had regard for Abel's offering. You might think of it this way God paid attention. To Abel. Let's take that word regard just for a minute and let's, let's just call it paid attention. God paid attention to Abel's offering. It was acceptable and pleasing to him, and so was Abel. God paid attention to Abel. Now don't misunderstand, Abel wasn't perfect and his offering wasn't perfect. Perfection's not the standard. A heart of faith is the standard. Abel delighted in God in his heart, and God paid attention to Abel. But God paid no attention to Cain. I mean, that's hard to even say, isn't it? God paid no attention to Cain. Ouch! That hurts. That's personal. I mean, when we think of it in those terms, we can understand a little bit how Cain feels, right? Because we know what it feels like for someone important to not pay attention to us. Now, let me be clear. God is not being petty or cruel or vindictive to Cain. God's lack of regard for Cain is, is objective. Cain has revealed that he has little regard for God with his good enough offering. God sees what's true in Cain's heart. Which might sound something like this in Cain's thinking. See? I knew it all along. I knew it wasn't worth devoting myself to God. Look, I brought him an offering just like he expects, and then he didn't even pay any attention to it. He's all able, able, able. He doesn't even pay any attention to me. See, I think that's how Cain feels. In fact, we know that's how Cain feels. His face, his countenance has fallen, and he's burning with anger against God. But in verse 6, the, the sentiment that God doesn't pay attention to Cain really falls all apart. Look at verse 6. God does pay attention to Cain. It's just a different kind of attention than he gives Abel. God is actually very gracious to Cain. God sees Cain's heart, which is against him, and he gives Cain attention anyway. God does three things for Cain. He, he asks him a question. He gives him a gospel promise, and he gives him a gospel warning. Even though Cain did not receive God, 
or did not give God what he deserves, God gives Cain exactly what he needs. Listen to God's question. Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? God's asking Cain, can you, can you do just a little bit of self-evaluation? Just hit the pause button for just a second. Look at your heart. Can you recount what it is that has just transpired and explain why you're the one who's angry? When you think about it, can you really justify anger against me at all, Cain? And Cain's silent. So then God counsels Cain. He gives him wise words. He, he counsels him with his gospel promise. Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is God's gospel promise. Cain, don't you remember? Don't you know that if you will believe and practice righteousness, that you will be regarded by holy God? Cain's still silent. So God gives Cain this appropriate warning and encouragement. Cain, if you do not do well, sin. It's crouching at the door and it's desires for you. God says, Cain, wake up. Don't you know what's happening? Don't you know that the sin is in your heart is going to take over and master you? And then God adds an encouragement. Cain, you must rule over it. Cain, it's not too late. Get a grip on your heart. It's as if God is telling Cain, it's Satan that has regard for you in your sin. Don't pay attention to him. Don't let him be your master. Cain is lost in anger and he remains silent before God. But he speaks to his brother Abel. All of this is happening in the context of worship. Did you get that? Nail that down. All of this is happening in the context of worship. We are meant to learn something about worship here. A few years ago, several of us in the congregation read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's about missions or evangelism. And Piper has this premise for missions and evangelism. It's this, that missions or the gospel exists because worshipers don't. The gospel exists because worshipers don't. Do, do some of you remember that? You remember that study that we did? You see, the gospel transforms people into worshipers of God. The gospel transforms people who worship themselves, like Cain, into worshipers of God. And, and this makes total sense. God created Adam and Eve to worship him to obey his word and tend his garden and fill the earth with glory. And they were unhindered in their worship of God in the garden until they listened to Satan's lies and chose to serve their own glory. Still, God gave them this gospel. The promise of the seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, who would conquer sin, death, and the devil on their behalf. The mercy of God. Even after the fall, by faith in the gospel, Adam and Eve continue as worshipers of God. Now, they're hindered by their sin, and they're hindered by the toil and pain of life in a fallen world, but their God has, been, has given them this purpose, and it has remained to worship God and obey his word. To worship God by being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with worshipers of God for his glory. 
Abel believed and offered tribute to God from his heart. But Cain rejected all that stuff about God. And his worship was sinful. Even though Cain has, had already rejected God and shown contempt for God with his good enough worship, God showed Cain mercy. God appealed to Cain to seek the righteousness of Christ. And with those very words, God is calling sinners to worship him this morning. Why are you angry, sinner? If you do what's right, and if you worship God through faith in Christ, it will go well with you forever. Don't spend another moment in silence before God. Believe in Jesus and just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Find the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the joy of living in Christ. Well, what do you think that Cain said to Abel in verse 8? It's a funny little sentence. We're not told. But the context of the verse gives us a couple of ideas. Based on the context just before the verse, Cain may have told Abel, well, he might have unloaded on Abel about how God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but no regard for my offering. He just ignored me, Abel. And that conversation may have gone on for a long, long time because angry people complain a lot. Or, based on the context that follows that verse, it may have been a very short conversation. Brother, walk out in the field with me. Which shows Cain's premeditation. And in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Hmm, how, how did he kill him? Did he use his bare hands? Did he use a rock? What were his wounds? Was there a struggle? Did Abel see it coming? We don't know. Kind of the questions we like to ask, we just don't know. What we know is that Cain wronged God with unacceptable worship. What we know is that even so, God was gracious to Cain. What we know is that Cain responded in anger towards God by killing his brother. Cain was angry at God, but anger, it just won't stay in its place, right? Cain isn't just angry at God, he's just angry. That's how anger works. And there's no better target for his anger against God's rejection of him than the one who God accepted, Abel, his brother. He's prime target. Yeah, I remember James' words from the book of James, chapter 1, verse 20. They couldn't be more, we couldn't see it more clearly than here, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, it's just a fixed principle. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we can hear the echo of God's words, Cain, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But Cain would not do what is right. He would not master his sin by believing in Jesus who defeats sin. And so he's cursed. First, just as uh, he did with Adam and Eve, God asks a revealing question. This is Cain's opportunity to repent. God is showing mercy even now. And then a convicting question when he says, Cain, I see your sin. There's something about sin that makes, that makes the tree of life disappear, remember? 
There's something about sin that makes us stupid enough to think that God doesn't see. Remember the, remember the two-tree test in the garden? It was, it was, just, it was as if the, the tree of life just kind of just disappeared and all Adam and Eve could see was the tree that God had commanded them not to eat of its fruit. And in his anger, Cain can't see that God is holding out a branch of the tree of life to him. His gospel counsel. In his sin, Cain somehow thinks that God's absent. Cain is supposed to be for his brother, not against his brother. And this is egregious. And listen to how Cain answers God. I don't know where Abel is. Am I my brother's keeper? When Adam and Eve answered God in the garden, they didn't lie. They were pathetic, but they didn't lie. Cain lies to God. Sin has gotten worse. One generation, sin has gotten worse. Where is Abel? Where is Abel's body? Did Cain dump his body in a ditch and cover it with leaves? Maybe Cain intended for no one to ever find Abel's body. They would all just have to live without Abel. Remember, Cain's, Cain's angry at God. Maybe if God's favorite wasn't around, God might favor Cain just a little bit more. Anger does not produce righteousness. It produces lies and deception and murder. And more lies. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. Now, did you hear how Cain answered God? He's clever and he's tricky. He's crafty like a serpent, isn't he? He lies to God's face, he dismisses God, and then he challenges God. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for my brother. You are. That's what Cain says. Do you see how crafty Cain is to find a way to blame God for his anger and his sin? You can't blame God for your sin. Why are you angry? Why are you sinning? The weapon for mastering sin is repentance. That's the tool you need. Do what is right. Repent and make God your master. Cain is in full and open rebellion against God. And he has sacrificed his brother in worship of himself. Stephen Tracy says that Cain's murder of Abel is explained theologically. I think this is right. It's explained theologically. This murder is not explained sociologically, economically, or psychologically. It's understood in terms of Cain's rage against God. That's why Cain murdered. In his rage against God, Cain kills his brother, the image bearer of God. Do you see that? Pick up in verse 9. Let me read this again. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. When Adam sinned in the garden, God looked at him and he said, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. But God looks directly at Cain and says, Cursed are you, Cain. God curses Cain directly. And what's the curse? Abel's blood cries out for vengeance as it seeps into the soil. The ground that Cain has been working to bring forth grain so Cain can eat and live, that ground. God curses Cain from that ground. That ground which opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood from Cain's hand will no longer yield food for Cain to put in his mouth. So Cain is cursed to leave that ground. He's banished from his family. He's exiled to a place where offerings are from the place where offerings are made to God. You see, sin's getting worse. Sin's getting worse, and the curses are getting stronger. And the exile is getting further and further away in an easterly direction from the entrance to the garden where the cherubim and the flaming sword are still visible reminders of the glory of God. Cain will become a wanderer. God has no regard for Cain and sends him away. It's interesting to notice something about God's justice here. God sees everything. God sees everything, which means that God, who is the judge, is also the witness. That's why God has perfect justice. God, who is the judge, is also himself the witness, not only to Cain's actions, but the motives of his heart. So God's justice is always perfect, but there's something else here. There's something else here. Remember how close we are to the days of creation. How does God's justice come about from an earthly perspective, from our perspective? Think about the account. Does does God avenge Abel because Cain turned himself in? No. Cain protests. Did Adam and Eve turn him in? No. Did Abel cry out to God in his dying words? No. But there is something about God's justice that is woven into the very fabric of creation. Just as Abel dies and returns to the earth, his blood cries out from the earth for vengeance. Somehow justice is built into life and the created order, and God made it that way. So that the very act of injustice itself, the blood is crying out to God's ears. We all from childhood have hate being treated unjustly. Hate being blamed for something we didn't do. We grow up with hearts that long for justice. Even Cain wants justice, not for Abel, but for himself, listen to his appeal to God in verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain thinks that God's punishment for murder is unjust. Wine, wine, wine. Poor Cain. 
I mean, here's all the proof that you need to understand that anger is selfish. Look at how, when confronted, Cain's anger turned to self-pity. That's too much to bear, Lord. Oh, you're really piling it on, Lord. All in one day, Lord, I'm driven from my ground, I'm hidden from your face, I've become a wanderer, I've become a fugitive. And that's the one that, that really bothers Cain, being a fugitive. Now that he knows a man can kill a man, Cain's afraid that a man might kill him. And all the while, during all this is going on, while all this whining is taking place, he's actually defiant towards God. You're too strict, God. You're so unfair, God. Some have identified this as the very first lament recorded in Scripture. And, and who is it that Cain laments? Himself. Oh, poor me. Not poor Abel. Not what have I done, but God, what are you doing? It's the same with us, isn't it? I mean, can you see that? How often does your anger produce righteousness? It doesn't. It produces unrighteousness. How often does your anger, when it just doesn't get resolved the way that you want it to be, rip, you know, flip into self-pity? Oh, oh, how I've been wronged. Oh, how I've been made to put up with so much that I shouldn't have to put up with. And now can you see that when you are in self-pity, you're really raging against God with anger. Just looks different. Just looks different. God, I just, I just don't like the circumstances you've given to me. God, I just don't like to have to work so hard. God, it's just so troublesome down here. God, things aren't working out the way that I want them to. I'm not, I don't like the life you've given me. Whether it sounds like self-pity or rage, it's anger against God. It's anti-worship. And look at what God does in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from his presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What? It's astounding, isn't it? It's astounding. God shows mercy to Cain? Does that bother you? Does that offend your sense of justice? Isn't Cain getting away with murder? I mean, in Genesis chapter 9, we'll get there soon enough. After the flood, God says that if a man takes a life, he forfeits a life. Why is that not the case back here in Genesis chapter 4? Well, as with Adam and Eve, Cain will not die immediately for his sin. But he will ultimately face the judgment of God. At this time in history, God has not yet established civil authority to execute justice on earth. And he does not justify a second murder. Those things aren't, those things aren't in place. What was, what was the mark that God put on Cain? That's what everybody wants to know. We don't know. But I think we've missed the point. It's not the mark that prevents people from killing Cain. 
It's God. God doesn't say, well, Cain, you're, you're whining and you're wearing me down, so I'll, I'll, I'll put this mark on you, and maybe if people see it, they won't kill you. Good luck. No. God says, not so. Cain, Cain says, God, they'll find me and kill me. Not so, God says. If anyone kills Cain, God himself will take vengeance on him sevenfold. That's complete vengeance. I mean, God's made a declaration. God takes an oath, and he seals that oath with the mark. That's all that the mark is. God the just is merciful to Cain. Over time, man's justice will develop on earth. When man develops cities and societies, God will authorize the civil authority. But God does not make Cain's family execute justice on Cain. And Cain will not get away with murder. And the wages of sin is still death. And man is still appointed once to die and then the judgment. And we're seeing the common grace of God in a fallen world. That's what we're seeing. In the fallen world, God bestows gifts even on his traitors. Jesus says, your father in heaven makes his sunrise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Cain the wanderer wanders to the land of Nod, which means wandering. I love the way Moses writes that out. The curse doesn't make Cain a nomadic wandering tribesman forever. He's cursed to leave the place where he was, that ground. He doesn't belong there anymore. He's got to go somewhere else. Pick up in verse 17. Let me see if I can read this picture of the first family album. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Do you see how, see how they're going on under the common grace of God? And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other was Zilah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And you see them, you see them progressing. You see, you see society developing. All these things. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. By the mercy of God, God's curse on Cain does not remove him from God's creation mandates or blessings. Cain marries. He has children. He goes off and he builds a city. See, he doesn't wander forever. He must go to another place. A skilled society develops. A civil order develops. And so does the depth and breadth of sin. 
from Adam to Cain, and then from Cain to Lamech, seven generations, sin is invading deeper, hearts are getting harder, and man's rage against God is growing more violent. Lamech breaks God's creation order of marriage between one man and one woman by taking two wives. And then he brags to his two wives that he's murdered a man. A young man hit him and hurt him. And Lamech goes straight to the nuclear option and kills him. Wow, what an angry temper. What a vengeful man. See, we're meant to see that Lamech, the older, wiser, stronger man, should have a little patience with the younger man. And even if justice is due, Lamech should be limited to hitting the boy and hurting him. Not killing him. What a vengeful man. And he brags about committing the murder. And look at how he brags. He takes God's words and twists them to fit himself. He takes God's oath, which is an oath of protection of Cain from being murdered, twists it, and declares for himself the right to murder at any offense. To bring not seven times justice, but 70 times justice against anybody who stands up against Lamech. He's a vengeful man. And his vengeance is the very opposite of the instructions that Jesus gives his followers. To forgive a brother seven times? No, 70 times. Forgive. Adam and Eve's original sin to decide for themselves what's good and what's evil has resulted in Lamech, who is an evil God-hater. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman begins with Cain and Abel, doesn't it? And we can trace it all the way through Scripture. We can trace it through Egypt and Israel, through Canaan and Israel, through Israel's kings and against Israel's prophets, to Herod against Jesus, all the way to the book of Revelation. But what about the seed of the woman? Pick up in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son also was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If Cain is the seed of the serpent, and he is, and Abel is the seed of the woman, well, well, what now that Abel's dead? What happens to the promise of God that the seed of the woman would, would crush the head of Satan? Is it over? God provides Adam and Eve a son in place of Abel. His name is Seth. And Seth even has a son. His name is Enosh. Among Seth's line, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's not a worldwide thing. It's a seed of the woman thing. God's promise is not thwarted. God's will is not stopped. It continues on. He's made a promise, and he's going to keep it. God will keep the promise of a Savior that he made. 
God's decree of a serpent crusher will come to pass. This is the first of many interesting and powerful ways that God will continue the line of the seed of the woman until it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we can, we can read about genie, we can look at this the other way. We can read about Jesus' genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 and, and trace the line. The whole story of the Bible follows God's faithfulness to fulfill his Genesis 3.15 promise through his own son, Jesus Christ. And the New Testament helps to give us perspective on all of this. All of this right here in chapter 4 of Genesis. Turn to, turn to 1 John with me. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be despised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 23, or verse 25, Jesus calls the blood of Abel righteous blood. He appeals to the righteous blood of Abel. And, and listen to the author of Hebrews. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His faith speaks. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer encourages the readers, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. Christ's blood cries out and gives mercy. Jesus' blood speaks Vengeance on our sin and mercy on our souls. You know, what, we, what we see so clearly is that God is the foundation of justice and that God himself is just. I think sometimes we think, well, God's, God's just and sometimes he does merciful things. God does not merely do merciful things. God is merciful. God must be the foundation of justice in order to be the giver of mercy. If he's got complete handle on justice, then he has a complete handle on mercy. And so he would be the one you go to for mercy, not someone else. And God never abandons his justice or his mercy. Even if God the Son must become the one who bears the wrath of God the Father on the weight of men's sin in order to be the mercy giver. He would not abandon. That is the gospel that Abel believed. 
and he worshiped God. And that is the gospel that we believe, by which we've been saved. And so we too should worship God, paying him tribute, not good enough tribute, all tribute with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our soul and with all of our strength for all of our life. That's how we should worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Oh, how dim and unknowledgeable we would be about the world if we did not have your word. How disastrous it would be for us to live and to not know your word. Father, we thank you that your word became flesh and dwelt among us and became our Savior. We thank you that his blood was not wasted, but every precious drop saved sinners. Even now, when we repent of our sin, you cleanse us from unrighteousness by the righteous blood of Christ. And so we thank you and we praise you and we worship you today. In Christ's name, amen.